We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram and I just want to let you guys know in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera. I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Koch. That's C-O-K-E and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Mark Scandrett, thank you for joining me here today, man. We are we are embarking on a four episode journey here, responding and reacting to Shiny Happy People, the Amazon Prime docuseries, and I'm grateful to have you here. Yeah, I'm glad to be talking with you, Dan. We're going to get a little bit of, of your story and connection to this project in a minute, but let me just kind of set up what people can expect for these episodes. There are four episodes of the Shiny Happy People docuseries. It is, I believe, the most popular documentary that Prime Video has released. I I saw some headline. It's gotten the most downloads or streams or whatever. I've gotten a ton of requests or questions. You know, are you covering this? Could you cover this? Will you be covering this? And I'll admit to a little bit of hesitancy at the beginning around any of these kind of spiritual abuse type things, Mm -hmm. because 
it can be heavy and I can get kind of, I can feel kind of inundated at points, but I saw a Facebook post that you posted and we are connected through a, a number of mutual friends. I think 70 plus mutual friends on Facebook. And my wife actually shared your post with me. And I was like, Oh, Mark's been involved in this situation. He's got really good insight into it. I think he's the guy to, to do it with. And so I'm grateful to you for having posted about that as an impetus to finally, for me to get off my ass and talk about this show. Yeah. So thank you for that. You bet. Yeah. We're going to dive a little bit more into your connection in a minute, but let me just say, so we're going to be doing four of these episodes. The first half of the episodes is going to be on the main feed, the main you have permission feed. The second half of the episodes where we are going to permit ourselves a bit more freedom, a bit more, you know, we might be a bit more speculative. We might kind of let ourselves go off on some rabbit trails that come up in the first part of the conversation. That's going to be on the patron feed only. So if you want to hear the second half of these episodes, you go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke. You get all the other patron stuff, which you hear about every week when I talk about it in the middle of episodes. So I don't need to go into it here. So that's the structure of the episode. And then toward the beginning as well, after we, I kind of recap each episode, I've got some things I'm calling PSAs. And this is basically like, if there's something kind of factual that I think that the show got wrong or, you know, whatever, like information for the public good, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> like I'm going to start with that. And if you have anything to add there, and then we'll kind of get into our reactions to the episode. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yep, sounds great. So before we dive into the episode, Mark, tell us about yourself. Like, what is your relationship with the Duggar family, Bill Gothard and his institute, all that stuff? Sure. So I don't have really a connection with the Duggars, but I definitely do with Bill Gothard and Institute in Basic Life Principles. Yeah. I'm a kid, a product of the 70s when I was in grade school to middle school, my dad went to, it used to be called the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts back then. And my father went to the conference and hardly anything exists like this in the U.S. today. These were huge conferences. You know, they I grew up in the Twin Cities and they filled the entire St. Paul Civic Center with thousands and thousands of people. It started on Sunday night, I believe, and it went three hours a night until Friday, Saturday, and then it was a full two days. You were given a big red book when you registered, but you were told not to share it with anybody else because they really wouldn't understand it until they'd been through those seven days. My father went and he came home and it really struck a, a chord with him. And he sort of said, "We, I want to make some changes in our family. Like uh, there's some really good stuff here. And we normally had family devotions, but we started having quite long times at the dinner table around Bill Gothard's material. Then when I was 15, my dad invited me to attend. I was dating my then girlfriend, now wife at the time. She was 16. And we went together and experienced that together. And then I would say from the time I was 15 until I was 21 or 22, Bill Gothard's teaching was one of the strongest influences in my life. How old are you now? I'm 52. Okay. And when did you have your children? What ages? We started having our kids at age 22. And my kids are 94, 95, and 96 were when they were born. 
<laughs> Did, would you say that the kind of emphasis on having a lot of children and, and quickly was a part of that? Or did, was that unrelated to the fact that you had them quickly? I'm trying to think back to whether Quiverful was a, a pronounced part of Bill Gothard's teaching back then, or if the logic of many of his teachings are, are what I absorbed. Yeah. But I... I remember actually I, as a 15 year old, I went, no, no, I, yeah, on Lisa's 17th birthday, I went to v- go visit her in her farm town. And uh, I said, I really been thinking about this and I'm, I'm not for birth control. I think like the, the most faithful thing to do would be to let God decide the size of our family. And uh, it was funny because at the time she said, well, I had an aunt and uncle who went down that road and, you know, my, my aunt's uterus almost fell out. Like she was not, this was not healthy for her body. <laughs> that but is we a, were, a very interesting way of putting it. I understand what she meant. Yeah. But at the time, this was all theoretical because we were not yeah. relating sexually. And then when we did get married, uh, we were strongly advised to use birth control and by friends and mentors. And, and they're like, you know, if you don't use it, you're going to get pregnant. That's kind of how it works. Yeah. And uh, for most for most people, but I still had that strong conviction. What if what if the the good way, the best way, is to to let God plan it? And totally. so we did uh, stop using birth control, and um, eventually had a miscarriage, and then got pregnant. Lisa would say, and I I have you know some deep sorrow about this now. She said. You know, the the point was, can we trust God? And so for her, she was like, I really don't want to be pregnant again immediately. Like my body needs to recover. Yeah. And we had one of those kind of freak things where that maybe you hear about sometimes where about, you know, not too long after we'd had our first child, Lisa had been on a weight loss journey with some friends and they were losing, they were losing and she wasn't. And one night I talked to her about it. We we came home from a Christmas party and I said, I know you're on this on this journey, but it, you know, I'm not seeing evidence of it. And she just blurted out, Well, I think it might be because I'm pregnant. She said, If I am, I'm not just pregnant, I'm really pregnant. And so <laughs> she went and got a test the next day, and we found out we were like five and a half, six months along. Wow. So she she so did not want to be pregnant and was hoping we could trust oh, God to yeah. give a little space. Wow. And so like That's heavy. Yeah. Wow. So she she had a kind of a psychological block to even admitting she was pregnant, but part of right. her obviously knew. Uh, but the the stream of the teaching was like God can be in charge of our lives. We can trust God to like allow things when they're supposed to happen. And, yeah. you know, there, there's also that little, I think this is a myth that's popular in a lot of Catholic circles that if you're, if you're breastfeeding, you know, your chances of getting pregnant are less Well, she was. And yeah. And then Lisa came to me and she said, Mark, I just, I know you feel strongly about this, but we can't, I can't do it. When you're in a certain mentality or way of thinking there's like a hundred things that happen that make you start to interrogate it. Mm-hmm. And one of them was, I really loved my young wife, right? you know, um, and to see her not flourishing. Her suffering kind of started you on the path of, yeah. of questioning it. Well, that's really, yeah. yeah, that's beautiful. 
suffering because of my idea, my right. ideas. Totally. And of course, you know, some people listening will go, well, it's her body. Why would you get to decide, you know, like, um, and, th- and yeah, you're right. <laughs> right. No, I, yeah. I, I see that you're aware of that. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm bringing us a little bit cart horse backwards here. So I'm going to, I'm going to pull it back a minute. One more question mm-hmm. for you before we kind of go to the the basics of this episode. Describe for us what you're doing today. You do spiritual direction. What else is going yeah. on? Yeah, I'm a specialist in practical spiritual formation. So we run what we call learning labs, which are six to 10 week. I trust authenticity uh, journey, group journeys that are geared towards um, taking on practices to see if they might help help us heal and transform. And I also am a spiritual director slash life coach and I write books and uh, do talks and things like that. And I teach in the doctoral part, doctoral department at Fuller Seminary with some of the, some of my topics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Rad. So you're going to be bringing that to bear kind of in your, you've got both, you've really got two angles you're coming from. You have personal experience in the younger years of your life. And that Mm -hmm. was a a lot of what that initial Facebook post that you wrote was about Mm -hmm. and sort of your your regrets and your thoughts about all that stuff and kind of where you've come since then there's the personal stuff, which is inextricable from the professional and sort of later adulthood stuff. So we'll, we'll be hearing from you on kind of both of those planes throughout these episodes, which I'm really excited about. Yeah. And it's interesting. I felt like with the Facebook post, I was sort of outing myself. Like I don't, Mm. it was so long ago and I went through a, a season of, Reevaluation and faith deconstruction. Twenty-five mo- years ago, moved my family to the Mission District of San Francisco and sort of reinvented myself. And so, yeah. uh, I think a lot of my friends were surprised that this yeah. was part of my story. <laughs> I bet, I bet, yeah, that makes sense. Well, so, well, thank you for for that honesty. I'm glad that it was that it led to these conversations. So, okay, focusing back on the show, Shiny Happy People, Amazon Prime Video. Overview of episode one, we get introduced to the Duggar family. They are Mm -hmm. popular reality TV stars, 15 and counting, 16 and counting, 19 and counting, whatever they keep Mm -hmm. changing the name of the show. We are also introduced to their association with Bill Gothard and -hmm. what eventually becomes known as the Institute for Basic Life Principles, a fundamentalist Christian organization that applied his understanding of biblical principles to family life, including homeschooling curriculum, eventually family structure, authority structure, dress codes, discipline practices, sort of any Mm -hmm. practical question that heads of a family might have around running their family in a, quote, biblical or Christian fashion. In episode one, we meet a bunch of the Duggar family members, as well as some talking head experts and people connected to either the Duggar family, the show or the IBLP. We get the origin story for the Duggar family, including husband Jim Bob and wife Michelle, and how the Learning Channel, TLC, began their reality TV relationship after Jim Bob served two terms in the Arkansas State Senate and then a failed bid for the U.S. Senate. We also learn about the Holtz, lifelong family friends of the Duggars who are also on the show and whose oldest daughter married Josh Duggar, the oldest son of the Duggar family. You might recognize Josh Duggar's name from the highly publicized child sex abuse scandal that eventually caught up with him, you know, a decade later and made headlines a few years back. We get the beginnings of that story towards the end of this episode. But before that, we also get the links between the Duggars and Bill Gothard, 
The Duggars eventually became the most famous IBLP spokespeople, much like Tom Cruise is for Scientology, and were briefly introduced to some of the Gothard slash IBLP principles, especially that of authority, where God's the head of the husband, husband above the wife, wife Mm -hmm. above the kids. And we hear Gothard say that these umbrellas of authority literally protect families from Satan and his temptations. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously there's more to come here. And, and I think a, a future episode kind of deals with that more. So we're, we'll save some of our authority chat for later, but we get introduced to that concept, the most famous of Gothard's principles. And finally, we are introduced to the quiverful concept where Christian families ought to have as many children as God gives them, considering each of them a blessing. And this is based on a reading of Psalm 20, Psalm 127, which reads, quote, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. End quote. OK, did I get the sort of basic synopsis right, Mark? Dan, I think people could skip the episode in those that three minute <laughs> run. Just it's all you need. <laughs> Too bad it's coming at like the, the 15 minute mark of our episode anyway. All right. Yeah. So that's so that's kind of the basic rundown. I've got a couple of these like PSAs like you know, get the information correct for the public, uh, before we kind of dive in deeper. Do do you have any of those that you'd like to do before I jump into them? No, go ahead. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold, the rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Okay, so I got three of these. And the reason I'm putting these in the beginning, in the first half of the episode, I want to make sure these are on the main feed. Because, you know, these shows are, are, are massive in reach. And... If there's something that I think is actually inaccurate, inaccurate, I want to, uh, it's just like a, it's kind of nerdy. It's a peccadillo, but it's also a value of mine to care about accuracy. So Mm -hmm. Jim Bob Duggar makes the claim on video at one of these Gothard things that the birth control pill caused Michelle, his wife, to have a miscarriage after their first child. And I was like, huh, I'm not sure about that. So I, I looked that up. According to the best consensus now, here's a quote. Despite common misconceptions, there's little scientific evidence that taking birth control pills prior to pregnancy or accidentally taking birth control pills during early pregnancy causes fetal death, miscarriage, or birth defects. It is nonetheless recommended by, you know, the American Obstetricians Society or whoever it is. It's it's recommended to stop birth control pills if you become pregnant, but it seems to be more out of an abundance of caution than anything else. So probably Jim Bob's claim that the pill caused a miscarriage is false. There are basically some fringe cases where it's not helpful, which is why they recommend not to do it. So that's number one. Anything to add there, Mark? No, you got it. (laughs) Brooke Arnold, one of the people who is uh, one of the talking heads, calls Wheaton Harvard for fundamentalists. Uh, But for those who know the distinction between fundamentalists and evangelicals or who don't know but are curious, that's actually backwards. It's Harvard for evangelicals. Mm -hmm. And the evangelical movement started as a reaction to fundamentalism to try to be kind of in the middle. This is your Wheaton's, your uh, Fuller Mm -hmm. 
seminaries, your Christianity Todays, stuff like that. Now, these are still conservative organizations and institutions, but the whole point of evangelicalism when it was founded was to be less hardline than fundamentalism and Mm -hmm. actually to engage with the broader culture and not be so walled off. That misconception that, that she spoke didn't have any practical effect on the episode, but I'm a nerd and I want to call that out when I, when I hear it. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, full disclosure, my grandfather uh, was on the faculty at Wheaton mm-hmm. and helped found the psychology department there, which for evangelicals uh, in the 19, late 1950s was like. That would have been almost scandalous. Yeah. yeah. You know, you'd have most places called it behavior science, not psychology, because there was such a fear about those things. But Gothard's headquarters was just down the road. And man, so many people that were influencers when I was young came out of Wheaton College, including B- Billy Graham and and others. So yeah, it really was a, a place that cultivated people that went on to do, do big things. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that it wasn't you know, that 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 was a, a more moderate place was a place that Bill Gothard came from, you know. Yeah, actually, that is interesting. It's it's oversimplified to say he went to school at the big school for fundamentalists. He actually didn't. Mm-hmm. He his mm-hmm. move towards fundamentalism was contra to the spirit of Wheaton. And that makes for a more complicated, you know, since that's probably not the main focus of the show is not mm-hmm. like Bill Gothard's trajectory, although they're, they're already doing some of that, laying a little bit of track there, but that's, that is kind of interesting. People coming into IBLP would get the sense that these are biblical principles in the big red books. And as I was moving out of it and I went to college and studied psychology, I could look back and see traces of, you know, popular theories of personality and, you know, things like that. From the you know schools of of psychology, there was some Freudian influences and some Jungian influences that I wouldn't have been aware of as a fifteen year old, but definitely did influence Bill Gothard. Oh, interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so final third and final PSA. There is a strong implication toward the end of the episode that growing up under Bill Gothard's teaching might create child molesters. That Mm -hmm. like, it says, yeah, Mm -hmm. they're monster. They see a monster, but monsters are created. And they mentioned that Bill Gothard has been accused of some stuff, which they don't get any any details in in episode one. Be that as it may, no one actually knows what causes pedophilic disorder uh, or pedophilia, the behavior. So the disorder is, it's a DSM diagnosis for a particular kind of you have attraction towards children and you have anxiety about that and it interferes with your life. But some of the following appear to be involved based on research, genetics and epigenetics, differences in brain structure. There are studies around frontal lobe, temporal lobe, and white matter hormones. So being having a, what exposure to hormones, like perhaps in the, in the womb, developmental differences, like there are associations with ADHD, autism, and lower IQ Of course, not in most cases of any of those situations. Let's not, we don't need to over pathologize, you know, Mm -hmm. neuroatypicality or whatever. And childhood experience. So this is where you'd maybe make the argument. uh, But part of this is part of the childhood experiences that seem to be associated are head and brain injuries. 
And there are other things like exposure to pornography at a young age, exposure to sexually inappropriate conversations at a young age, neither of which would be very likely to happen in a Gothard type family and sexual abuse, which might happen. A 2020 paper, this is a bit more recent stuff, links emotional abuse in childhood to pedophilia. So I think your only real argument here is that the emotional abuse that would be standard maybe in a Gothard type home could be a factor in developing pedophilia. But I think we just have to tread very lightly here. And I I thought that that was probably the least responsible moment of the episode. This stuff is extremely serious. This abuse is when it does occur is of course, one of the darkest and deepest problems we face as a society, but it, it doesn't help to sort of wildly throw out like specious claims about mm-hmm. how we turn people into child molesters. Like, like let's be careful around that yeah. stuff. So that's my final PSA. Any, any response to, to those? Uh, no, great, great job though. I, when I watched it, uh, the, the little yeah. alarm bell in my head was ringing for all three of those things that you mentioned. Okay, great. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page, Mark, where, where should we start? So now mm-hmm. let's, let's dive into kind of our responses to the meat of the episode. Yeah. Just to tag on to where you landed the third comment, I wonder if people who are struggling with tendencies towards pedophilia might be drawn to systems that create rigid boundaries and clarity as a way of managing those impulses. You know, so obviously correlation is not causation, but I need some help. I, I'm, you know, I need some help and the system helps regulate me. Yeah, I, I guess I all I can say within the bounds of my own competency there is that's interesting. That might be true. Uh, if I can, if I come across some stuff, maybe mm-hmm. before next episode, I, I will, I'll share it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. One thing I wanted to note is I'm something I'm aware of in myself is like, it's hard to look away at a car crash. Yes. And this documentary series is one in a, in um, among many right now where we sort of know going in, yeah, it's going to go bad, right? Yeah, the artwork has these like obviously ironically placed pink smiley faces on everybody. And you're like, okay, yeah. you know, you, you kind of know. Yeah. So we're primed to do some like rubber nicking, you know, and watch yeah. this thing go off the rails. And I'm just aware in myself is this a is this a healthy thing for me to want to look on contempt at people and to, to see it in that light? I, I was drawn to um, Bill Gothard's teaching for some really good reasons, and no, no system is all good or all bad. There's there's a mix of things, and I, I think that maybe one thing that the the series did not do a great job at is highlighting what the attraction was, how how things like IBLP have been helpful to people in a lot of ways. That doesn't, we, I think we can hold, we can yeah. hold both the toxicity and the, and the draw life-giving um, draw together. Yeah. So that, I think that is a good place to kind of start the analysis. So I actually did write down a note from something that the show did explore around that topic. Mm-hmm. Both the Holtz, who are the family friends and the Duggars, yeah. uh, various members of the Duggar family talked about the, like the draw of this kind of rigid and conservative framework. Mm-hmm. And the way that they noted it was that Jim Bob Duggar grew up poor 
and mm-hmm. with a father who was kind of a kind of a deadbeat dad, maybe is yeah. sort of the simplest way to say it. And I I just felt like, wow, that's so interesting. And then his his buddy, uh, Mr. Holt, I didn't write down his first name, mm-hmm. was talking about how Jim Bob and his kind of trying to even at a young age, as a teenager, like going the opposite way of his dad and, and sort of being drawn to a more strict, more conservative approach, you know, the sort of antidote there to both poverty and just kind of familial chaos, we might say Mm -hmm. sort of parenting chaos or something like that, I think represents something very real. And Mm -hmm. to understand the situation fully, I think we need to give proper weight to that draw and to recognize Mm -hmm. that in those respects, this system does offer people something yeah. better than what they had growing up. And mm-hmm. it's not their fault that they got what they had growing up. And it's also not the same as saying this is good overall. It's just to mm-hmm. say it is providing certain goods that are antidotes to certain particular bads that these mm-hmm. people are sadly too familiar with based on their own experience. That tracks with a lot of the people that I knew in the that were drawn to that particular movement. I think that there's like several levels to uh, look at the series, and one is the spe- specifics of the Duggars and IBLP. But the, I think there's also larger themes or impulses that even if you weren't part of this branded experience, yeah, are in culture more generally. People who've grown up in chaotic systems are often attracted to fundamentalist systems to create create some order and structure. And so I'm guessing, even if someone didn't have that particular Bill Gothard experience, what they're describing matches up with a lot of different fundamentalist tendency groups. Well, it's funny that you should phrase it that way, because I have this other note, like, the wild cousin, right? So they interview the cousin mm-hmm. who was on the show, but she's in a family of two kids. Her parents do not raise her in the same Gothard stuff. Mm-hmm. And she lives what is essentially a pretty normal American life, probably in the state of Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So it made me think about my life here. And and I was not raised as strictly, obviously, as the the Duggars and, and this mm-hmm. I wasn't in this kind of environment. But I still recognize the psychology of this dynamic of the the sort of inside the umbrella of safety and outside. So we had the families that only would come to church a few times a year. They're not really doing the Mm -hmm. full thing the way that we're doing the full thing. We go twice a week. And there's a sense of danger Mm -hmm. with what those kids are into, what they're learning, what they're being exposed to, the TV Mm -hmm. shows or movies they can watch you know, the, the, the habits they're making. And I really recognized that not having grown up fundamentalist and not even particularly conservative of an evangelical upbringing for me, especially in my family, but that dynamic still of like, well, but, but we do the real thing. They do a watered down version. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you can Mm -hmm. port that anywhere and, and fill Mm -hmm. in the blanks of the real thing and the watered down version. And there's maybe something psychologically that stays constant about that. And I think in addition to like a a family story that would draw someone to a fundamentalist group like this, there's also a reading of culture 
that might be a factor. So it's a generational phenomenon that people look at where society seems to be going and be a bit nostalgic for a time that was simpler, less complex, a time when they felt more innocence in themselves. And to go, the the high call right now is to go back to something more basic. And it's scary, you know, like uh, I think about this, the 60s and 70s. I know how it was narrated to me by my parents and by my um, my faith tradition was the 1960s cultural revolution was all bad mm. and um, things were better before the civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, people, everyone wow. knew their, everyone knew their place. I have a theory about this. You, so this is basically always the call of conservative sociopolitics. It's always the message. Make America Great Again in 1980 for Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. was about essentially going back to some aspects of the 50s, but certainly mm-hmm. pre-cultural revolution, pre-mid to late mm-hmm. 60s. Make America Great Again in 2016 for Donald Trump was about going back, you know, to uh, maybe 80s and 90s yeah. before the woke mob took over or whatever. You can never go too far back because that's retrograde, right? So yeah. con- conservatives are basically always wanting to go uh, 20 so twenty years or so back, not a hundred years. Yeah. Like we don't want to go back, you know, we don't want to go back to basically Jim Crow or whatever, like you, or you couldn't admit it if you did. And I don't think that most mm-hmm. conservative people do want to go back a hundred years, but whatever chaos yeah. they are experiencing now, whatever kind of cultural whiplash they have experienced. They would like that to end and they want to go to a simpler Mm -hmm. time. And this is like, I feel like this never changes. Like that is, that is essentially what a conservative personality, a conservative orientation to the world just is that, that, that is maybe one of the most foundational things about being conservative is wanting something simpler and, and older. And it's interesting that it really, it is fairly subjective. Like I I have conversations with people I'm close to where I'll say for you, the 1950s were simpler in your individual experience was not a good time for black people. Right. Was largely not a good time for women. There was extreme poverty in the inner cities of the United States. And you just, your social location gave you a chance to not exactly um, see those things. And in addition to that, I think it was a time where people did not talk as openly about the difficulties of life, alcoholism, child mm. sexual trauma. And so that was always going on. Of course. <laughs> but it was, it was kept at, the information was kept private and we found it maybe more psychologically healthy to acknowledge the difficulties now. So now I'm feeling like tempted to go into a bit of rabbit trail territory and, and let this conversation go where it will, which means I think we're coming up on the split between the main feed and Patreon feed. I want to give you a chance. If there's anything else you kind of wanted to make sure a bit more kind of meat and potatoes, make sure everybody hears um, yeah. about this before we make that jump. I I, I think another um, kind of broader contextualization of this is also thinking about where Christian faith was 
in the 70s and 80s, or maybe what the dominant themes were. And so I'm an older person now, so I can tell you what it was, you know, back in my day, but church wasn't particularly interesting Mm. for many people. Ministers often, sermons were pretty impractical and and, um, very into the hermeneutics or things like that. There wasn't a lot in, at least I can only say, I can't, you know, in my experience, there wasn't a lot to hold on to. It was highly theological, highly doctrinal, not very practical. And that might sound surprising, you know, to pe- people who are younger, who uh, were, grew up during the mega church, attractional church era, where the pendulum really swung. And so Bill Gothard's teaching seemed really life-giving. Like there's actually practical things that could help me have better relationships and feel more peace in my life. And if I do X, Y, Z, if I get up at 5 a.m. for a quiet time, and if I, um, you know, if I eat 12 pieces of wheat bread a day, and if we order our family in a certain way. Yeah. And so ironically, like my emphasis to this day, my career has been about practical spirituality. Yeah. And I have to acknowledge that the the gateway drug for me into that was Bill Gothard. <laughs> okay. I okay, before we switch over, actually, this practicality thing is huge. So I think about this all the time. The lens through which I normally think about it is like communicating you know, psychologically sort of interesting or helpful knowledge, sometimes theological knowledge or or Mm -hmm. claims or whatever, you know, because in therapy, I'm constantly using all of these tools that somebody did the difficult work. They did all this research. They kind of pared it down. They, they got fancy with their statistics. They tried it out for 10 years with clients and groups and, and then they distill it down to a handful of principles Now, that kind of work that's done methodically and carefully is like, to me, some of the the most valuable stuff in the world. It's it's pure gold. And when I can use that distilled stuff with clients, it clarifies so many things for them, you know, and and before the scientific method, I think essentially that religions and wisdom traditions were engaged in a very similar process type of work. It, they didn't have quite the same sort of peer review process and empirical testing, mm-hmm. but you're trying things out. Wise people are synthesizing things into proverbs. The proverbs that produce mm-hmm. good results are the ones that are passed down. And this kind of practicality, I actually think we can't really live without it. Like mm-hmm. the world is too complex. We actually need shorthand sort of rules of thumb we need. Now we don't necessarily need a certain authority structure to be, you know, keeping them in place or whatever like that. You can get abusive the way that that power is, is wielded. But in terms of, could we do without seven tips for this or four rules of thumb to follow? I don't know that we can Mm -hmm. like the, the alternative to that is too much hermeneutical chaos yeah, And so I do think that he's onto something. The problem for me is not that he turned it into practical principles and practical, you know, applications. I hope to be doing that actually all yeah. the time. It's that it's the way in which he did it and the sources of authority and the sources of information and, and the antipathy with science and the secular world. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's all that stuff that is the problem. It's not the practicality itself. Mm-hmm. And 
any, any thoughts on practicality? I also want to touch on prosperity gospel brief, briefly before yeah. we switch to the second half. I also think I know from my experience, it was so animating to consider the possibility that if I followed these principles, my life would be better. Yeah, uh, Our family experience would be better. And so there's this hopefulness. It might be the nuance to practice is that you don't necessarily know which practices are going to be transformational for you. And so it's a bit of an oversell to say, if you follow this rule yeah. or this way, you're going to get these certain results. That's true. But you know, what's so funny. I'm thinking as you talk, we go through the John Gottman book with couples, seven principles for making marriage yeah. work. And those like, I think you're right. You don't know which of those seven would be the, will really kind of fill the hole for you and your partner. Right. Mm -hmm. But the way that he, and, and to some degree, his, his wife and other colleagues of his through decades of relationship research at university of Washington through really careful, rigorous research, they found these principles that are linked to sort of physiological changes in people's bodies. Mm -hmm. They can measure a hundred variables on a longitudinal study 30 years long and see which ones actually are related to divorce and reconciliation and all that stuff. Those principles are real, that they are not a one-stop shop for all problems, mm -hmm. but it's, but there is somewhere in the middle that if you do it right, the principles are, are truly valuable mm -hmm. and you don't know which one, but you can, you can say like, yeah, like if a couple really buckled down and worked on soft startups and worked on the four horsemen, you know, and, and the antidotes yep. to those, and, and they, they took responsibility instead of getting defensive. If couples did all those things, 100 out of 100 couples will have a better marriage. I mean, I would say 98, mm -hmm. whatever it's, it's basically a hundred. Mm -hmm. Which one will be the big one or big ones? Don't know. You'd have to figure that out. But yeah, it, it, it is funny. Like I'll take the principles, but what matters for me is how they were derived. That's, I think, the difference. Mm -hmm. I'm imagining a lot of people listening to this will have this experience. Someone gives you a suggestion. You know, today it might be something like if you go vegan, you're going to feel so much better. Your health problems are going to go away. You're going to live more justly. And, yeah. you know, for, for my experience in the Gothard uh, time period, for me, it was like, if I burn all of my, not just my, my, if I even burn my Christian rock music, you know, if we get yeah. rid of our television, yeah, we're going to just be living life on a much higher level. These are the, these, these things are the things keeping us back from what will, will really help us flourish. Totally. And, and, and there's a certain satisfaction to that. I burned the music. Yes. It's visceral. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do get a sense of release. Yeah. I, I get, I stopped wearing those clothes and now I wear these clothes and all kinds of stuff. Oh my gosh. Okay. There's so much more to talk about and we're going to continue talking about it on the patron feed. So if you're listening on the patron feed, this will just be one long episode. And if you are going to join the patron, then find the episode and go to, you know, 40 ish minute mark, something like that. And you'll find the, the second half. So we'll, we'll take a little break and we'll come back um, for that second half. Mm -hmm. 